0: Turpentine is excited to announce our new show, the AI Daily Brief, hosted by Nathaniel Whittemore. The AI Daily Brief is a daily show that covers all things AI, from legislation to new technologies in the market, to the philosophical and ethical debates around generalized intelligence. If you're looking for an edge to stay up to date on everything AI, subscribe to the AI Daily Brief at the link in the description.
1: That's when I frankly became dumbfounded because I gave it very difficult cases. I asked GPT-4, what was the next thing it would do? And it went to a molecular diagnosis of something called 11-hydroxylase deficiency. If I ran into hundred random doctors, I'd be surprised if one of them would be able to do that. And so I do think that this is the mechanism to keep doctors up to date with the latest. I think it allows you to remember everything about the patient that you should have remembered. It will allow you to avoid errors. Absolutely, no doctor should be without it. They should have this sidekick that is meticulous, completely up to date, ever vigilant, and sometimes wrong. And that you're there to, to evaluate that. You can't even compel doctors to Google uh, what is the latest findings uh, for their patients. But we ha- if we have this active agent that's listening in and looking at the record, we can really ensure that the patient gets that extra level of scrutiny. Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive
2: Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together, we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. Hello, and welcome back to The Cognitive Revolution. Today, I'm excited to begin a short series on AI in medicine. My guest today, Professor Zach Kohani, is chair of the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard Medical School, and co-author of the new book, The AI Revolution in Medicine. Professor Kohani was among a select few people to receive early preview and research access to GPT-4 in the fall of 2022. And his approach to exploring, characterizing, and beginning to integrate AI into clinical practice constitutes the single best practical study of modern AI application that I've seen from academia to date. Sam Altman, in a foreword to the book, writes that, this book represents the sort of effort that every sphere affected by AI will need to invest in as humanity grapples with this phase change. I totally agree. And I believe that the key insight is the importance of expert hands-on use. To quote the book, to really understand GPT-4, you need to use it and live with it. In the same way that no amount of reading and listening to others can tell you what it's like to ride a roller coaster, what it's like to interact with GPT-4 is similarly indescribable. By not just theorizing about the potential of AI, but truly embracing it, Professor Kohani and his co-authors were able to understand GPT-4's strengths weaknesses, and quirks. Throughout the book and our conversation, he uses concrete examples to demonstrate GPT-4's capabilities and potential impact. Ultimately, he concludes that it is clinically superhuman and will become such a part of the fabric of medicine that to receive medical advice without GPT-4-like support will soon be considered substandard. At the same time, he does understand That it's such an unfamiliar and indeed alien intelligence somehow both smarter and dumber than any person you've ever met that human supervision and control remain critical with a positive vision of human ai symbiosis in medicine and the goal of allowing doctors to quote re-engage in medicine as an intellectual and emotional process focused on each and every patient dr kohani and his co-authors issue an urgent call for large-scale testing, as well as public education around AI technology and its limitations. Regardless of the field that you're in, Dr. Kahani's combination of deep immersion, enthusiastic exploration, pragmatic optimism, risk awareness, realism, and forward-thinking vision make this a worthy example for others to study and emulate. The book, which I find myself recommending frequently, is the AI revolution in medicine. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Professor, Dr. Zach Kohane. Professor Zach Kohane, welcome to The Cognitive Revolution. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm super excited about this conversation because you have just released, or you're in the process of releasing a new book called The AI Revolution in Medicine, which really couldn't be more on the nose for the topic of our podcast and I think is really an exemplary exploration of cutting edge AI tools and how they can make an impact uh, in our lives and in in an area that is obviously so critical and so complicated as medicine. I think it's really um, a a phenomenal artifact that you and your co-authors have created. Before we get into that, I normally don't even do this, but just because there's so much kind of skepticism and doubt and people are, you know, call me, uh, AI hype boy all the time and things like that. Could you maybe just give us a quick introduction to who you are, who you are, your background in medicine and, and IT surrounding medicine, so that folks have a sense
1: for where you're coming from? Sure. Grew up in Switzerland. Came to the United States for uh, college. Uh, learned about computers as an undergraduate, even though I was a biology major. Went to medical school, and then was terrified by learning because I didn't have any doctors in my family and learning firsthand that it was a noble profession, but not a great science application. And so bailed for a few years to get a PhD in computer science during the heyday of artificial intelligence in the 1980s. And then as uh, we went into AI winter because of the disappointment after some of the overstated promises of that period, I completed my clinical training as a pediatric endocrinologist and uh, started a research group. And so uh, I was a professor at SLAM, a professor at Harvard Medical School, first in pediatrics. Then I created a new department, biomedical informatics. I'm the chair of that department and have lots of uh, bright young faculty doing lots of great work in using computer science and information processing techniques all the way from genomics to uh, clinical AI. Uh, I just started a new journal, a uh, spin off of the New England Journal of Medicine called uh, New England Journal, NEJM AI, to focus on how do we actually get clinical grade validation for uh, AR, AI artifacts in clinical care. And uh, along the way, I've been really uh, quite involved with a lot of IT health infrastructure as well, trying to get the data to flow well and most of all, for patients rather than for third parties.
2: So I would kind of bottom line that by saying you're about as credentialed as you can possibly get in uh, the world of the intersection of AI and medicine. You've seen a lot. You sounds like you've you know been through some ups and downs and, and seen a lot of things that didn't really pan out. Well, let's fast forward then to about six months ago. Um, I'd love to just kind of hear the story of how it came to be that you got this very early access to Gpt four, what that initial experience was like, um, and then of course, we'll get into all the you know the more conceptual issues, but I think the first person narrative is so powerful so give me kind of a, a sense of that
1: I had uh, met uh, Peter Lee from Microsoft uh, who's the head of Microsoft Research uh, s- several times in different venues I uh, he's very easy to get along with. He understands academia well. He himself was a department chair of computer science at Carnegie Mellon, uh, back before DARPA, back before Microsoft. And um, he, he calls me up and he tells me that um, he has to tell me something that, but I, on one condition that I can't talk about it with anybody else that he had to get top level company clearance to talk to me about it. And this was before ChatGPT came out. It was, But it was about the next thing, GPT-4, and he showed me what it could do, and that was already pretty exciting, but then he gave me access, early access to it directly so I could work with it. And that's when I frankly became dumb, dumbfounded because I gave it very difficult cases case of a child that was called to the nursery where there was a hole in the base of the phallus. You could not palpate testes. I asked GPT-4 what was the next thing it would do. And it went step after step, imaging workup, hormonal workup. And I gave it as it went step by step, what the results were. And it went to a molecular diagnosis of something called 11-hydroxylase deficiency. If I ran into 100 random doctors, I'd be surprised if one of them would be able to do that. And so I knew that there were a lot of limitations to this. I I had seen it, quote, hallucinate. I'd seen it make up stuff. But the fact that it could have this dialogue with me at a very high level of medical uh, sophistication on a... Large language model that was not particularly tuned for medicine was my model, and the fact that I could ask it questions literally about Talmudic advice to the same program and get expert commentary was uh, was uh, unsettling and and exciting at the same time. And, and in fact, my immediate reaction, when Peter told me was my words failed me, which is unusual, I'm talking it. But I told him in the end, I was not surprised that this has happened, but I could not believe it was happening now. I'd have, I'd expected this would happen maybe five years at the earliest. But then as I realized what it could do, I, it, within a few days, it occurred to me that it was gonna transform the backend business of healthcare, how money is paid, how, how it's billed, how it's transferred, how procedures are permitted or not. So the, all the backend stuff, it was gonna transform boring administrative stuff that clinicians have to do. But also since it I knew it was going to be released to the public, it was gonna change the level of expertise of patients who have been increasingly uh, bereft of primary care support and who, out of desperation, use whatever data sources and knowledge sources they can. I mean, there is a reason why you've heard the term Dr. Google, because even though a lot of the sites it's, uh, you get sent to are either bogus or really wrong-headed. They're just not getting a good enough alternative to get to expert advice. And in fact, with all its warts, so long as you have a human loop, so long as they eventually talk to a doctor, it's much, much better than what we have today. And that's why even with GPT 3.5 that people were experiencing before GPT-4, You are hearing lots of people using this for their own healthcare. And this is not just an American phenomenon, this is a international phenomenon. And so it's very interesting when you have a transformative technology like this, which takes a fundamentally very conservative, sometimes for the right reasons, discipline like medicine and changes some important power relationships. And so it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out. I I know there's going to be a lot of pushback. Some of it will be because of genuine concern about accuracy, about bias. But also there'll be a lot of sacred cows. People are making a lot of money by um, having a chokehold on how information flows in the medical care system. And what kind of advice is given when? You could imagine that if a large language model tells you five reasons why there are alternatives to the surgery that was just proposed, and then you go to talk to another doctor and say, that makes sense, the first doctor who proposed surgery is not going to be happy. That's just One example among literally millions of such conversations that are going to happen as a result of this democratization of knowledge. Of course, it's going to happen across many verticals, not just medicine, but medicine is such a personal, obviously personal part of our lives that um, it's going to make those issues quite real all, all of a sudden.
2: So that's a great overview. And there's a lot of little areas there that I want to follow up on and and dig into in a little bit more detail. But before getting into the medicine-specific aspect of this, one thing that Sam Altman said in the foreword to the book, which I think is so true, is that the study that you guys have conducted here is really emblematic of the kind of study that is going to need to be done across a wide range of disciplines.
0: Hey. We'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. I wanna tell you about my new interview show, Upstream. Upstream is where I go deeper with some of the world's most interesting thinkers to map the constellation of ideas that matter. On the first season of Upstream, you'll hear from Mark Andreessen, David Sachs, Balaji, Ezra Klein, Joe Lonsdale, and more. Make sure to subscribe and check out the first episode with A16Z's Mark Andreessen. The link is in the description. OmniKey uses generative AI to enable you to launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms with a click of a button. I believe in OmniKey so much that I invested in it, and I recommend you use it too. Use CogRev to get a 10% discount. For what it's worth, and listeners have heard me talk about this before, so this is just for you.
2: I had kind of a similar experience. I was an OpenAI customer. They had a customer preview program for GPT-4 as well, so right around the same time, I got essentially, you know, I think the same access and had the same, you know, mind blowing experience where I was kind of dumbfounded, uh, you know, stayed up all night (laughs) the first night just trying thing after thing. So I can relate. But I want to hear a little bit more about, Okay, once that initial shock wore off and you said to yourself, I've got some time here to really get out in front of this thing and try to figure out what's going on, you know, what it can be, what it can do. How did you then approach that and what what advice would you give to others who are thinking about
1: undertaking such a study in their own areas? I think that what you have to do is actually get your hands on it and really put it through its paces in real world examples in what you do. And so, for example, I went through literally hundreds of different scenarios only with a few which have made it to the book of doctors engaging with it, with different questions at different points in the diagnostic and management process, all the way from initial screening to management questions, to generating billing codes. Um, I came at it and I asked friends of mine what they, what questions they had asked their doctors recently and ran, ran it through those questions and I think it's really important to see how it answers those questions rather than having a theory about it because then you see where it does well and where it doesn't do so well. And I right now, I don't see any alternative to having lots of examples like that. I then did the same thing for research. How can, what are the different research tasks? Write down a piece of paper, to, uh, sadly. All the different parts of uh, both clinical research and basic mi- biomedical research, all the questions that you could uh, ask. And I went through it and there were some areas where it clearly was not ready for prime time. And there were other areas where it did really wonderfully. And if you're in, whether as a consumer, a citizen, or if you're running a business, I know of no other way than to actually do that assessment uh, directly frankly that's probably what motivated even though I decided to do this many years before it was announced uh, the New England Journal of Medicine nejm AI because we need to have clinical grade validation of these tools and it's not obvious where in society this is going to happen so at least I want to create a journal that'll be one one source of clinical grade validation for this. But we need many, many such venues and of course, we're going to see this across all verticals. If we don't see them across all verticals, that's where the danger is going to be. And so if you're a decision maker, I see no alternative other than try it out yourself. Don't let other people tell you what it does, use it in your own hands. And As in many, many things that are exciting like this, on the one hand, it does things better, some things much better than you could imagine, and some things it's incredibly limited. You need to learn uh, firsthand. I have tried to point out some of those in the chapters that that I wrote in the book, but again, you need to learn firsthand. I think that's truly
2: phenomenal advice. A lot of times people call the AI moment right now, pre-paradigmatic. And I think that speaks directly you know, to your point about don't just take some theory and work from that. Uh, we don't have really good theories at this point for what these systems can do, even now, let alone you know, what they will be able to do in the future. Uh, the book is extremely quotable. And you just kind of alluded to one of the quotes that I loved, which I, I, I thought uh, crystallized something that I had felt and tried to articulate, but you guys did it better uh, when you said that it is simultaneously Smarter than and stupider than any person you've ever met. I thought that was genius phrasing. Yeah, that's uh, that credit goes to Peter Lee for that one. That was a great quote. I love it. it. Here's two I think that are yours, and they seem to be in some tension. So I'll give you both, and then, uh, you know, it's kind of like the smarter, stupider thing, but help us unpack this and, you know, give us a little more detail. So, first quote How well does the AI perform clinically? My answer is I'm stunned to say better than many doctors I've observed, but then in some tension with that, also quote, for the foreseeable future, GPT-4 cannot be used in medical settings without direct human supervision. So unpack that for us.
1: How impressed should we be that GPT-4 can ace most of the examinations that doctors have to take to get certified doctors? I think it's, 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 impressive. Uh, And it's impressive how fast it's improved. It it did very poorly on the National Medical Board's GPT-3 a year ago. But since then, it's now uh, top notch. But here's the thing, it's not a human being. And I'm not saying this in some uh, human first uh, bigoted sense. It's just that a lot of the common sense things that we have, that we can share among us, We can't assume are true of GPT. It can engage with you at an expert level about pretty complicated diagnostic and therapeutic problems. At any given point, not often, but the mistakes are huge. It can go off the rails and start arguing with you about a point where it might actually be wrong, or about something that is important to you, but it doesn't think it's important. And so on the one hand, you know, there's the old joke, what do you call the um, person who graduated at the bottom of their medical school class? And the answer is doctor. And that means of course, that half of doctors on average are worse than the top half. And I'm quite convinced that in the hands of those bottom half, GPT-4 can make them much closer like the top half, which would be a huge improvement in healthcare without even t- talking about the the torchbearer, doctor house kind of things you could do. Just getting us to practice medicine the way it should be done by better practitioners would be it tremendous advance in healthcare. But because we can't assume that it understands our values or what's important to the individual in their decision-making, not having a human loop, I guarantee, is going to create lots of problems. And and I can tell you also, the more you know, the more you can get out of GPT. If you ask it uh, more intelligent questions will give you more intelligent answers. And so for the foreseeable future, yes, absolutely. And it'll become a better and better tool. It'll be able to integrate not just text, but vision and sound. It will allow us to um, see things or and catch things that we may have missed because human beings are not always as attentive, as alert, as uh, fastidious as they should be. But you still have just to make it to be a IQ 100 human being means that there's a lot of shared values and performance that you, that you can't actually necessarily rely on GPT-4 to have. Now I'm quite willing to believe that when GPT-7 going around as a robot and living among us. May be able to acquire those, but we're far of those kind of skills and those kind of values. Maybe, but we're far from that. And so today, human in the loop, until GPT, general, these generative models look quite different from what we see today.
2: You kind of alluded to the torchbearer paradigm, and you you sketch out four paradigms for kind of how an AI system like GPT four can be integrated into medicine. I think you know, in a in a sense. These kind of line up with ways that it could be integrated into all sorts of different areas of society. So I kind of want to go through each one and just interrogate them a little bit. Um, They are the trial, the trainee, the partner, and the torchbearer. So let's start with the trial. The notion here, as I understand it, is that you could think about GPC-4 as sort of like a drug, and you could try to evaluate it by kind of having a, you know, some people get it and some people don't. And like, how does that uh, turn out? You ultimately kind of seem to reject that as a paradigm. I didn't quite follow you all the way there. To me, I kind of thought, well, geez, why not just run that trial? And if it makes people healthier, then
1: that would be pretty meaningful to me. We have in the other pregenerative model flavor of uh, AI and these convolutional neural networks that we use so successfully for image recognition, we have a very focused task, retinopathy. On looking at the back of the eye or pneumonia, looking at the chest X-ray. And there we can define, here's a patient population. They have a certain characteristic. They come in coughing, let's say, and we're going to accept patients of this kind. We're going to say, here's how we're going to determine success or not success, which is how long are they going to live or um, did I get the right treatment? And we know how to do that. We've done, it. FDA has done this for drugs. They've even done it for these AI widgets. And the, the, the merit there is it's very clear in this, and especially if you do a randomized controlled trial, whether it is a statistically reproducible kind of phenomenon. That's not going to work for GPT-4 for many, many reasons. One. When you start a conversation with a GPT, you may start because you have a question around that patient coming with cough. But then very quickly, because GPT includes all of medicine, you could end up anywhere in medical diagnosis and therapy space. And that means that if you really wanted to do the trial, you'd have to compare it across all diseases. So it's a huge trial. It's not against... It's not versus a narrow question like do you have retinopathy. It's like this patient population get healthier when GPT was used. Those trials will happen, but it's going to be a big haul, a big lift. It's going to take thousands or hundreds of thousands of patients, and it's also not going to be reproducible because what you find as how the effect of GPT-assisting doctors in Massachusetts and Boston with a lot of health technology is going to be a different result than what you see in China, which has almost no primary care, or in Africa. Or even more practically, I can tell you that predictions, for example, of who is going to most likely to die from COVID. We did we saw these AI models early in 2020. And Hospitals a few hundred miles away had totally different uh, performance with predictive models because the patients were different. Different obesity levels, different, and we didn't know, uh, and different race composition. It's going to be very difficult. Furthermore, these, unlike a, a small, just million parameter model, these large models with a trillion parameters are changing all the time. So I don't even know. In fact, I know for a fact that the GPT-4 I'm working with now in April is not the same GPT I was working with in October of uh, 2022. And so it's very hard to stand up behind it and say, oh, it passed some trial test and now it's, it's going to work. That works for drugs, drugs are static. And even there, even with drugs, it's a bit of a problem because with different populations, it might have different results. But since this interacts with not just human physiology, but the practice of medicine, how doctors are different in different hospital systems, it's very, very hard to, to validate it. So the trial model is not going to be particularly uh, useful for GPT as it's being used, which is as a general purpose, medical problem solver. You could use it for a very narrow purpose, like uh, screening, but in that case, it's not clear that purpose-built models might not be able to outperform it. It's generality and linguistic supremacy is really where we're getting most of the lift.
2: I think there's a a number of really interesting points there. thing that again, I think is kind of representative of a bigger societal wide issue as well is society and individuals and organizations are all going to change in response to AI. And then, you know, not too far downstream of that, it will also be like AIs interacting with AIs in ways that become increasingly hard to predict. And so I do think that is way under theorized right now, you know, it's one thing to say, we hold all else equal, we give you GPT-4. Like, how does that go? But then we give everybody this and then we wrap them up as agents. Like, you know, I think we really are stepping into a, a great unknown. But I still want to challenge maybe just one more time on this question because it does feel like, you know, I'm reminded of like an old RAND study that they did. This was probably 40 years ago now. But they did something where they basically said, we're going to give free unlimited healthcare to a certain population. And we're going to give like no healthcare, you know, or whatever they currently have to another population and just kind of step back and observe over a period of a couple of years. And then I'm not an expert in that study. I think it's probably somewhat debated. It will probably be highly debated with GPT-4 as well. But it does seem like at least conceptually possible that you could sort of do something at a very high level like that and then come back and be like, who's living, <laughs> you know, who's not, who's uh, reporting, you know, well-being and who's not. Um, and if there is a significant difference. I, I, I
1: want to compliment you on your uh, perfect skepticism, but when it comes up to, to actually doing that, that trial is it'll be hard to bank the results because let's say you do it for two or three years, how is it not contaminated? So you give one healthcare system, GPT, you give another healthcare system, not GPT, just good doctors, if there's a difference. Is it, is it because of the difference of GPT or is it difference because of the difference in the healthcare system? You can do your best to match them up, but it's hard to do that. And people are going to hear about GPT and is it really going to be a pure, you know, and the patients are, are using it and some of the doctors might be using it. I think it's actually practically very hard to do the experiment that you just described in a way that you would really want to do more than cocktail party conversation about it and say, oh. It really helped, and this is the percentage of bad outcomes and the percentage of good outcomes. I think that's going to be for the general use. I think that's going to be very, very challenging.
2: Certainly, I do think it will be hard to avoid uh, the leakage. You know, and it's certainly almost seems impossible to double blind. So it definitely challenges the
1: the paradigm. No, and just and also the, just the confounding the differences in health in healthcare systems. It's fortunately, or unfortunately. Medicine is not right now cookie cutter. There's a lot of bad things that happen because it's not cookie cutter. There's a lot of latitude for doctors to make mistakes and to do things that are frankly remunerative but not necessarily clinically effective. But because of that, there's so much variation and you know the economic model, i.e. a for-profit hospital, a non-profit hospital, an academic hospital, a community hospital, very different. And again, where uh, different parts of the, even different parts of the United States are different, so it's hard to know what the unit of study will be. I'm sure people will try it. My prediction is it's, it's going to be hard.
2: Yeah, that sounds all that sounds all right to me. So next up is the trainee. The paradigm here is essentially give a battery of tests to an AI, kind of same battery we'd give to a doctor, and if it can pass, then you know one might think that that's good. But again, I think you do a great job of keeping front and center the alien, and that's a term that I've also used and you use in the book, the alien nature of the AI. And the fact that we, you know, supporting those benchmarks or those tests is a fundamental set of assumptions around humanity and just how people will act in all these situations or circumstances that we're not testing explicitly. And we just can't make those same assumptions for
1: um, the AI. Exactly. I mean, for example, this is you know this really happens. Uh, God forbid you have a cancer diagnosis. There is a conversation to be had, which is, do you uh you know, you have a wedding that you want to make in six months, and you might or not prefer to have a better chance of making it healthy to the wedding than having a better chance of living additional year, and those trade-offs are a conversation that that maybe one day these models can do, but today they can't, they don't have that common sense. Uh, They don't have the human grounding yet.
2: So I think that's that's perfect and again this is something that people should develop an intuition for by getting hands on you know you find these alien moments in your own explorations and it, when it hits you it hits you in a way that is hard to kind of internalize um by reading and I think your your book does a great job of bringing that to the fore but again go try it people the partner paradigm so I think this is kind of where we're landing right now as like your recommendation. You also use this term, symbiotic medicine, uh, with the, the doctor, and well, it's really a three party uh, interaction now with the doctor and the patient and the AI. I'd love to hear a little bit of kind of what do you think the right ways. And I understand that it's you know call this provisional, but what do you think the right ways of using a tool like GPT four GPT four as a clinician are? Like, what should the standard of care be? as people have this, you know, could we see ourselves in a scenario where it becomes like a violation of standard of care to not consult GPT-4 in the not too distant future?
1: You know, I remember when I was in training, we had did something that's now disappeared because medicine, the financial pressures of medicine are such that it's not done, which is after clinic, we'd go over together as a group, all the patients and say, and explain what we decided. And then some people would say, hey, did you think about this? Oh, no. Well, I should call the patient and say, we'd better do that. And that additional reflection absolutely improved our quality of care. And so by, by analogy, and because increasingly it's going to be multimodal, having a AI of this kind, listening in on the conversation, looking at the clinical notes, and saying all the time, hey, have you, did you think of that? I think it's a high probability that you, something that you didn't mention, and you can say, oh, I already thought of that. Don't, you know, be quiet. Or, oh, maybe I should think about that. Or, did you know Mrs. Jones already um, had had that test? Don't, you know, don't order another test. Uh, okay. And there's a new drug that's actually twice as effective, lower toxicity level. We try to keep doctors up to date, and it's impossible, even if they're trying, and not all of them try. And so I do think that this is the mechanism to keep doctors up to date with the latest and the latest expanding medicine that goes, for example, into genomics that so many doctors don't know about, that sometimes patients know more about than they do. I think it uh, allows you to remember, in quotes, everything about the patient that you should have remembered. It will allow you to avoid errors. It will uh, allow you to identify other patients that perhaps you should be paying more attention to. So the way I think of it is done well, done well, absolutely no doctor should be without it they should have this sidekick that is meticulous completely up to date ever vigilant and sometimes wrong and and that you're there to to evaluate that i can if i were a patient i would want my doctor to have that in the previous models we can't compel doctors to uh Keep up to date by the literature. We can't even compel doctors to Google uh, what is the latest findings uh, for their patients, but we, ha- if we have this active agent that's listening in and looking at the record, we can really ensure that patient the patient gets that extra level of scrutiny. And of course, patients are going to have access to the same level of expertise potentially. And so I think it's going to cause the healthcare system to have to increase the quality of its game.
2: Yeah, I think that's really, again, I appreciate that so much in the book because I think there really is no, you know, putting the toothpaste back in the tube, so to speak, on this. And there's really kind of the only way through is through. So I appreciate you kind of confronting that head on. And I I actually was thrilled to see a mention of the app Replica in the book, we had the CEO of Replica on uh, the show as one of our guests. And it was such an enlightening conversation around how lonely a lot of people are, you know, how even, and she's been, she's had this app for years. So just how, while even the system was so unsophisticated, it meant a lot to people. And now it's, you know, obviously
1: accelerating. So I've actually been slightly terrified about that aspect of it because what today we would think of the crappiest interactor ever, the Eliza system that Joe Weizenbaum wrote, which was just a very simple, very shallow grammatical parser that uh, because a Rogerian therapist basically just plays back to you what you said with a tiny little bit of uh, uh, permutation, people would use this as an actual therapist, and this really, really what, I did not know anything. And Joe Weizenbaum who, who created uh, Eliza, his own secretary would lock herself in her office for a session with that. And so it's both perhaps heartwarming, but also pretty terrifying. And I think it does, does speak to how much we need the, the, that interaction and around healthcare. Let's just, you know, lest let your listeners be deluded about it, especially the younger ones. People with actual health problems have very few people they can talk to. When they talk, when they run into a primary care provider, if they are lucky enough to have one, it's a 10, 15 minute meeting, and most of their questions go unanswered. And when they have another question, it's waiting another six months where things could be done, and then they're not done until things are much worse. So there's a huge need. So
2: let's go then to the kind of possible future that we're not quite. Uh, in yet, which is the torchbearer model, you might also call this like the oracle model, or even the sort of you know scientific or research pioneer um, AI. This was something that I also looked really hard for. Right? One of the first things I tried to figure out is, does this GPT-4 system show anything that seems like it can generate truly new, novel scientific insight? And I came to the same conclusion that you did, and you wrote in the book, can GPT-4 independently develop testable hypotheses that entail specific therapeutic interventions with a high likelihood of being supported by clinical trials? Currently, the answer is no. So I think that's definitely true, but I, I don't have a great sense of exactly why or what the barrier is or how or when that might change. So what do you think is kind of the key thing that it can't do right now that, that ultimately cashes out to a no on that
1: question? I think that the the interest we should have is that it's ler- learning an amazing amount, sometimes in a superhuman way, about the things that we talk about. And so if there's a lot of human beings talking about it, it will know about it. And I don't want to anthropomorphize too much, but it's it can do some theory formation around those things that human beings talk a lot about. But where it's for a generation of new paradigms where human beings have not talked very much about it, it's a bit at a loss. And and what kind of data it would need and how to think about that, there's not a lot for it to learn. And I do think there are ways to approach it, but right now, this current generation of linguistically supreme, but not scientifically supreme uh, models i think are limited at the same time at the margins because of this maximum exploitation of what we already know collectively but not individually it can surprise us so for example doctors are often stumped and so there's a, there's millions of patients worldwide hundreds of thousands in the United States who are not diagnosed. And I have the privilege of being the principal investigator of the coordinating center of something called the undiagnosed disease network. And it's across multiple hospitals at Stanford, at Harvard, at Baylor, and in Florida and Duke and so on. And what we find is if you ask the right questions, if you do the right studies, if you do genomic sequencing, you can sometimes, maybe about 34% of cases to figure out what was the problem. And that way you make a meaningful change for that patient. And so i put GPT, and this is after seeing a lot of top doctors. So I put GPT 4 through the paces, not only of those cases, but even cases that have not been solved. And I said, hey, we found mutations in the following five genes. Which one of these genes do you think is responsible for this case? And it came up with a, with a, this top-ranked one was the one that we had independently, through a lot of basic science modeling the disease, the mutation in in a fruit fly, of all things, validated that it was the uh, cause of the disease of all the other genes, which were plausibly causing the disease. So it's not quite theory formation, but it's really working at the very ha- hairy edge of what's known, because of its ability to bring together all this knowledge uh, in a focused way for a question. So we have about 10 minutes left. I think that maybe
2: the final two sections I want to go into a little bit are kind of the next evolution of GPT-4. Sam Altman has recently said that they're not yet training GPT-5, but they plan to do a lot more with GPT-4, some of which has already been done and we just haven't seen it, like the multimodality and ability to understand images. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think, without just like hyperscaling the model, you know, 100X more, what are the kind of incremental enhancements? And that could be like attaching it to systems, or it could be, you know, some medical fine-tuning, or it could be more multimodality so it can also like natively understand scans. Like what are the things there that most excite you that you think will be most impactful?
1: I've been my whole life a science fiction fan. Let me try to, at least for the first part of this question, not go there. So here's what I think is going to happen relatively soon. One is using entire healthcare systems as not a fine tuning model, because right now it's very hard to fine tune uh, GPT, but to have a certain accessory set of embeddings, like using, for example, the Pinecone framework to create a, essentially a knowledge base that GPT can use to customize its advice for that healthcare system. So remember what we were talking about before, how different hospitals are different, with different populations. One way to address that is to say, this here's your large language model, GPT-4 or perhaps Google's uh, Bard, And here you have a set of embeddings representing essentially the multidimensional co-occurrence of findings in this patient population. And this way, you'll be able to give much more customized and deeply reflective of the practice of medicine in that hospital system than generic uh, GPT-4 or other large language models. So I think customizing it to the knowledge base of, and the practices of a system of a hospital system is going to be one important area the other important area um, is going to be specifically in speech i think that having um omnipresent speech recognition multi multi speaker speech recognition is going to address the thing that's been causing frankly the most burnout for physicians and the most unhappiness which is they've been turned into um documentation clerks. And by having, if you have a combination of the prior record of the patient and you're listening to everything that's going on between the doctor and patient, I'm fairly optimistic that you can come up with a very good first draft of the clinic note that the doctor can just look at, say, yeah, or edit, and then have a version of that note sent to the patient, to the referring doctor, and perhaps even to the insurance company, appropriately And so those are, I don't have to stretch my imagination at all to say that's where we're going to go uh, next. Beyond that, I think do think there is, the, the stretch is going to be in discovery. Because there is there's going to be some kinds of theory formation that are going to be very hard for GPT-4 uh, or, or um, any of the other leading large language models. But I think that there can be constrained parts of theory formation where you can say, can you identify in these data, the drug that seems to be the most effective based on X, Y, and Z. And although that's not a full de novo theory formation, it's a focused question that with the right data, I think it will be able to pull off. But I think we need to have the right kind of data It's not always obvious which is the right kind of data. It's not clear that the standard transformer model as it is currently um, implemented will work well for, for those applications. But we'll see. You allude a little bit to
2: also like the integration of, say, an alpha fold type, you know, something that kind of natively groks protein structures, you know, could be integrated with language.
1: Paint that picture a little bit more for us as well. Of course, the the best science, uh, science fiction outcome, which actually I think we will be there in probably 10, 15 years or maybe earlier, is I have a uh, patient with this cancer with this the, the following uh, mutations, both in the germline and the cancer. What's the right drug for this patient? If, if we don't have any drugs, what's the right drug to develop? And right now, AlphaFold, which is a kind of language model, because its language is, is the language of amino acid sequences, and that and a little bit of physics, but mostly the large language model, it's able to uh, solve the proteins of um, the, the structure of almost all proteins. It's already being used uh, to understand how small molecules dock. If there's already beginnings, and DeepMind, deep which has been leading in this area, has not understandably totally transparent about the next uh, next generation, but it's going to be around you know large protein interactions. and I do think that uh, something like simulating a cell will in fact be possible in a five to ten year time frame. But well before we get to that, it means that in a five year time frame we're going to be able to do a much better job of saying here's a drug company it has a, a bunch of interesting Drug leads to treat this cancer to treat Alzheimer's, which of these are going to be most likely to be effective and cause the least side effects, and understanding both, bring together the knowledge of structure from something like uh, alpha fold and its descendants and knowledge about disease progression that you get from large data sets from hospitals. That multimodal. Um, uh, linking will allow us, I think, to do a much better job in getting a much better yield, bring candidates all the way from this is a possible lead compound to something that will make it through phase one, phase two, and phase three with both efficacy and lack of the side effects sufficient to can the, the project. I think that will be transformative and I think we will see this within the next five years, but it's not just scaling up. Well, I think that's undeniably a super
2: exciting and inspiring vision. The last question I wanted to ask is kind of on the path from here to there, um, you alluded to, you know, there's gonna be all sorts of conflict, there's gonna be all sorts of noise, but I, I, was also, I was struck by a couple of, again, short quotes from the book. One that kind of surprised me as you said, You believe in obtaining patient data from patients as opposed to from systems. And so that just got me wondering, like, why is that? And ultimately, like, who do you think the AI should be working for? Do we all end up just like the hospital system have its AI and the doctor has its and the patient has their own? Uh, Or is there one that we all kind of, you know, work with together? The dynamics of kind of who the AI is aligned to and whose interests, you know, are primary um, again, seems just very under theorized. I'd love to get your thoughts.
1: No one knows how it's going to settle out in the long term, but I think in the in the midterm, you're going to have AIs that are aligned for different organizations. And yes, there will be uh, an AI that's aligned for the insurance company, and an AI that's aligned for the hospital, and an AI that's aligned for patients. And there'll be different markets for uh, for those. In the end, as a human being, I hope that, and I think that would be the most public support for consumers having the alignment be with them. And so I personally feel that if I am able to donate my data to a large language model or any other kind of AI, if it's aligned with me, I'm much more comfortable giving it my data than with a another AI, which is not necessarily aligned. with me. I am, just as I'm much more likely to tell my doctor it's okay for them to use my data to share, get a second opinion from a colleague, I'm much more likely to want to share my data. And by the way, through work that Apple has done, that we were actually quite involved with uh, a few years ago, through Apple Health, they have a relationship with 800 hospitals and it's growing by hundreds every month or so you can actually download all your medications, labs, uh, diagnoses, procedures, demographics, and soon clinical notes, but all those first. And that you can actually just repurpose, just as you can repurpose your images from your camera and your iPhone. And so this allows now tens of millions of consumers to potentially contribute their data. And because there are alignment issues, medical alignment issues, not the the, uh, the, uh, the uh, end of civilization alignment issues. There are a lot different alignments in the way healthcare is, or, is organized. I do think that asking patients for consent for use of their data will give us the biggest buy-in because patients want their data to be used, but for the right reasons. and. I think that's a patient and human autonomy question. And that's why we're fortunate to be in this era where more and more of our data has been liberated and is made available to us as consumers. And I think in that mode, our AI assistants should get it from us rather than from entities that may not be as well aligned with us. Uh, I regret
2: only that we don't have a a lot more time to dig into this in in even deeper detail. But the good news is you have written a whole book on this. The book is The AI Revolution in Medicine, GPT-4 and Beyond. I really think it's an exemplary study uh, and applaud you for all your work on it. Uh, Professor Zach Kahane, thank you for being part of the Cognitive
1: Revolution. Nathan, thank you. And now I know which podcast to listen to.